0: Hello, good morning, I'm Connie, I'm Chilean, I'm here with the Chilean team, and it wasn't that easy to get here, so thank you for all your prayers, and we went like at this medicine camp last week, so thank you for all. So our first reading is from Matthew 5, from 31 through 48. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exists that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter in the kingdom of of heaven. You have heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him hear a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorced his wife, except of the ground of sexual immorality, made her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, commit (coughs) adultery. Sorry. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of all, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn." But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of great kings. Do not take a note of white hair, for you cannot make a hair white or black. Let me say to be simply yes or no, anything more that's come from evil. You have heard that it was said, a knife for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not receive the one who's evil. But if anyone has you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to one who begs you from you, and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, "You shall not love your ne- you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes high, for he made his son rise on evil and those good, and send rain to the just and, and the unjust. For if you love those who you love, what reward do you, do you have? Do not even the tax collector do the same? And if you are great only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So, do not even the gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord.
1: <laughs> do you join me as we pray together? Dear God, we as always come and thank you for Matthew and for the focused and attentive tending he did to your words in the crafting of this book that we have been handed down and we come and sit under it and under you and ask you to to open our own hearts and minds and lives as we seek to understand it to know more deeply what it means to be loved by you and changed by you and set free to bear witness to you in the world in your holy name amen amen okay I need a volunteer in a few minutes if you have a bible Okay, someone who can read a passage, I'm going to give you an assignment, we'll come back to you, but could, is someone up for reading Leviticus 19:18 when I point to you in a few minutes? You could use a phone, any kind of Bible. Okay, Bill, Bill's, I'm coming back to Bill in a minute. Okay, thank you, brother. Okay, I want you to think for a second, someone's asked, asked you, what's it mean to be fully human? Okay, what does it mean for you to be fully alive and fully human? I don't know if you realize we're being instructed in that all the time. The media you get is almost always, it means to be fully human means to own this car, drink this kind of beer, shop this place. It might mean this way about what movie you see, what identity you assume or think you have, how you even approach the questions of identity you and I are being invited into understanding what it means to be fully human all the time. And the text we're looking at this morning is going to be Jesus' answer for what it means to be fully human. So if you're here this morning and you got up and you thought, sweet, midsummer, 300 degrees outside, I'm going to find out what it means to be fully human today. You're in the right place. And, and I've bitten off a little more than I can chew, and so I want to recommend a podcast to you in case I don't fully answer that question. Um, I often quote, and Johnny has quoted probably sometimes a man named Daryl Johnson. And Daryl has a podcast called the Daryl Johnson Podcast. Okay, should be easy to remember. Daryl's a, a, a Presbyterian minister. He was the, the professor of pastoral theology at the school where I went in British Columbia, Regent College, and he is a phenomenal Bible teacher. And so he and he loves the Sermon on the Mount. So I've been going back and listening to his teaching on the Sermon on Mount. And he has a sermon on each of the Beatitudes that I've been listening to every Sunday morning before I've come to be with you. I craft my sermon because it's terrible to listen to Daryl first because it's so good. You're like, I'll just just read Daryl's notes. It'd be a lot easier. Um, And then I I listen to it and it's just so great. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the Daryl Johnson podcast on the Beatitude about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what you'll realize as you listen to that is... Johnny and I are not that smart, but we Johnny is. But we borrow from really good people, and Daryl does a phenomenal job at taking the idea of righteousness, which is what we're going to look at this morning, and making it an invitation into being fully human. So, I would encourage you this week to, to listen to that podcast. It'll take about 35 minutes, and he's so excited about Jesus and about this invitation that I, I bet you won't be unexcited when you're done listening so again today we continue our series in the summer on the mount and let me let's review just a little bit right like what is jesus doing in this sermon is he just preparing some talks to give you and i a theology of jesus and the kingdom of heaven or is he forming disciples people at his feet right he's forming people which gives inherent dignity to people and almost every interaction you and I have during the week. So if you're a mother here and you are working to resolve conflict between your kids this week, you are, you are fully doing what Jesus has called you to do. You are forming disciples, and you can feel like, I'm doing Jesus's work. It's not fun, but it's hard. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's forming people to bear witness to the new kingdom of heaven. What, of what we've looked at so far, what's the most important beatitude? Remember, blessed, 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 blessed. The most important is, blessed are the, be bold. You guys are all saying it. You're just a little tentative on how you're, out loud you are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You and I should return to that every day. Lord, I need you. That's why we're here. We're singing, Lord, I need you. Okay? And remember, what parables have we used from other gospels that help illustrate the, the Sermon on the Mount some, right? We've said that the parable of the prodigal son so often gives us a great window into what it looks like to be poor in spirit, right? To, to return to the Father and just say, I have nothing to offer to you and watch him welcome us. We looked at mercy when I was here a few weeks ago, and we noted again the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what mercy looks like, to, to, to be the unlikely person to extend mercy to an enemy in lavish ways. And the passage we heard read this morning, particularly verse 20, is what many scholars say is the central passage of the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And that, again, is this verse, this line. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's this word, righteousness. Unless our righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, there's some sort of eternal consequence, which, which gets... My attention, right? First of all, it sort of begs, well, can I earn? It exceeds, meaning maybe I can accumulate. Is Jesus saying I can earn my way to heaven? Well, that does not seem like what we understand the gospel to be. And there's some sort of eternal ramification about righteousness. Gosh, maybe I ought to understand what that means because that might be a big wave coming offshore that I don't know what to do with. How many of you have ever heard righteousness in in a passage read before? Anybody ever heard the word righteousness or read the word, here, put your hands way up. Look around. Everybody. How many of you feel like you understand it as well as you'd like to? Nobody. How many of you feel a little daunted when you hear it? Yeah, me too. Which is why I want to again recommend to you the Daryl Johnson podcast on the Fourth Beatitude. Righteousness is a word used all over the Bible, 213 times. It's literally littered throughout Scripture. Just the Psalms as an example, it's used 46 times in the Psalms. Psalm 7, verse 8, let the Lord judge the peoples according to my righteousness. Vindicate me, O Lord. Psalm 9, 8, he rules the world in righteousness. It's in Psalm 23. It's in Isaiah 38 times. This is just the first chapter. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers dwell in her. Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I'll take hold of your hand. It's all over the New Testament, particularly in Romans, the book that uses it the most in the New Testament. 30 times Paul is talking about righteousness because he's trying to explain something that will make a lot more sense after we looked at our passage this morning. If you've read Romans and wondered, why is Paul on this so much to the Jew and Gentile church in Rome, what we look at this morning will help you understand that. And in Matthew, this is the, the gospel where the phrase is used the most. It's used seven different times in the gospel of Matthew. But five of those times, five of the seven are here in the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard it in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We heard it in the eighth beatitude, blessed are you if you're persecuted for your righteousness. We're told to seek it above all things later in Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his Righteousness. Our righteousness must be greater than the Pharisees. What does that mean? What is this righteousness? The best way to understand righteousness is by an Old Testament scholar probably named Gerhard von Rod, and he describes it as righteousness is right relationships. So return with me for a moment to the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You and I are formed and created by a God, and we are formed and created, full life is to be in right relationship in four different directions. We've touched on this a little bit before. Relationship with the earth, we're created and established in an earth, right? You and I are placed in an earth that has boundaries and constraints and things we're trying to interact with. I'm not trying to get political or talk about climate care or the fires this week or shrinking polar ice caps. That's We can talk about that. But just as an example, any of you had coffee this morning? And if you put sugar in that coffee, or milk, where those beans come from? They just fall out of the sky and show up on your doorstep? Or maybe did somebody grow them and put them in a bag and you bought them, right? You and I are in relationship to the earth. We're in relationship to ourselves. We have psychological health and well-being, right? Your sense of identity, security, affirmation, worth. You and I, of course, are in relationships with others. Right, we need others. You actually never fully yourself by yourself. You actually need to be in relationship with other people. And then our most fundamental relationship, of course, was, is with God. We're placed in a world to have healthy relationships in all four of these directions. And when we are, everything then is righteous. God, the Creator, who spoke you and I into being, is passionate, deeply passionate, that we live in a righteous world. With him, with ourself, with others, and the world. These relationships are meant to be in sync like the vertebra in your spine. But with the consequences of the fall, of course, right? They, they, they slip. They break the relationship. Again, the best way to understand sin is a breaking of relationship because of things we do. It's not, I did these things. What we do is we break relationship. And we break them, typically, in one of those four sets, or maybe all of them. That's what the the devastating effects of Adam and Eve are. That was a fourfold break. And again, notice, the devil is not as concerned with Eve about what she's going to do with break relationship with God. He just wants her to break it. Doubt God. Did he really say? Can you really trust him? Is he really out for your best? Unrighteousness is breaking of relationships, which means then that salvation and redemption is restoration of those relationships. What does God do? He saves Israel and Exodus out of bondage, and he establishes relationship. Exodus 19, you are my chosen people, a royal priesthood. The next chapter, Exodus 20, is the Ten Commandments. But before that, he says, I am the Lord your God and you are my chosen people, I who destroyed Pharaoh for you, I who showed just how ridiculous all the idols in Egypt are, that God, I am your God, and you will be my only people. And I'll give you these commandments because that will demonstrate to you and the world what right relationships, what righteousness looks like. And look at those, those laws Read through Exodus, but keep going through Leviticus and Numbers. They they affect how they relate to God, how they relate to each other, but also how they relate to time, right? Sabbath. How they relate to worship. How they relate in a civil society. It's it's broad invitations to righteousness. Israel's supposed to be, the world is supposed to look and go, what's righteousness look like? (gasps) Oh, Israel shows us what it looks like. Love God, love their neighbors, take care of the poor. Even again, let the land lie fallow in a jubilee year because it restores the land. But of course, we're fallen people in a broken world, and we didn't do a great job of that. So we need help again. We need to be saved and Jesus is coming, and what he's saying in chapter four, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember the intro to chapter five in this sermon is, hey, guess what? My dad, who is so passionate about righteousness, was so passionate about in the Old Testament, he sent me to make it right again. If you're in pain with psychologically and you're lonely, I'm coming. If you see the injustice for the poor, my dad sent me. If you see the worship system that's been set up, could never help you be free and invited in relationship with my father. I'm here, I'm on site. I am here because my dad is passionate about righteousness. And hey, one way way you can pursue that is be poor in spirit and come to my father and he's gonna produce these things. You're gonna get his heart. Now the downside is some of it could be hard. You're gonna mourn more, but you're gonna learn to be merciful And you're going to be blessed. He's going to take the law and fulfill it and help them really understand it. But if you were the keepers of the law in Israel, like the Pharisees were, wouldn't you feel a little like, ooh, I don't, this guy said I don't need to keep the Sabbath anymore in the same way? He does it, he's keeping the Sabbath, but he's eating bread and grain as he walks. That's weird. And he's talking to Gentiles, and oh my gosh, he's friends with tax collectors like Matthew, who wrote our gospel. So there's this subtle question that comes up, well, is Jesus throwing out the law, which is the pretext for our paragraph and really, in some ways, the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, are you ignoring the old standards of righteousness? No, he's bringing a different righteousness, his Father's righteousness. How is it different? How is Jesus' righteousness different from the Pharisees? Because again, he set up this question, is my righteousness greater than the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees would say, hey, we are all about righteousness. Sort of like any company in the world, if you ask them, do your people matter? They say, oh, all our people matter. But if you've worked for a company, you know whether that's really true or not. So the Pharisees are saying, I'm all about, it. we're all about righteousness, it's all we do. But they don't see it as relationships, what they see it is as keeping of the law. It's a quantitative understanding of relationship. Here's the law, you have to keep it. And typically, we're going to keep it the best. They have parsed out from the Old Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees parsed out 245 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And what they're dedicated to doing is keeping those and making sure you know how to keep those, which do you think you could do that? Over 500. I'm tired before I get out of bed, just thinking about it. And Jesus approaches them, and what he, what he confronts them on is, hey, you're not interested in relationship. You don't understand my father. Again, go through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus is utterly upset with the Pharisees because they don't understand his dad's heart. But what he confronts them with, too, is saying, hey, you know what? You can keep the letter of the law and not be righteous. You could keep all 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions and not be righteous which turns the entire religious structure on its head. Again, back to our parables. You want to see poor in spirit? Look at the younger brother in the prodigal son. You want to see the merciful? Look at the good Samaritan. You want to see what it looks like to keep the letter of the law and not be righteous. Well, the older brother in the prodigal son is the personification of that. And guess what? That whole chapter is really being taught to the Pharisees and the scribes. What is the older brother saying? The Rembrandt painting is so great, right? If you've seen the Rembrandt painting, the, the younger brother's here with his father and the older brother's here and Rembrandt paints a gap in the painting. And the older brother is standing with his hands like this, like he just can't be bothered to enter into the gap. There's no relationship with his dad or his brother. And what, what he says in the parable is, well, I kept all the law. I honored you, but you know his heart was never there, right? Right? It's the whole point of that parable. You kept the letter of the law. And what the Pharisees and scribes have been doing over time as they count the prohibitions and commandments is loosening the requirements and broadening the exceptions. They're loosening the requirements and broadening the exceptions for themselves. And Connie, again, thank you for reading as much as you read because it gave us the whole look. Bill, would you read Leviticus 19.18? Or, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, and against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. Perfect. Thank you, brother. Okay, so hold up your worship guide. Look at what Bill just read. Notice how what Connie told us again and Giz was, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said. He's not saying you've heard that it is written, because the law in the Old Testament was written. What he's describing is the oral tradition that is built up around the law through the scribes and the Pharisees. that gets collected down through the Mishnah and the Talmud. It's just people unpacking, how do we obey? It's like you took every sermon Johnny preached around a passage and you created an oral tradition around it. But over time you might realize, well, Johnny's sort of bending the law for how he wants to keep it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. What does he say? You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, verse 43. But what did Bill just say? The law, the written law, is you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's understanding of relationship, even in the Old Testament. What the Pharisees have done have been that around to like, yeah, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy, that's okay. That's why we hate the Samaritans as well as we do. This is this oral interpretation so what Jesus is in, in inviting and beckoning and his, his followers, his disciples to understand, his disciples to understand, is that as you draw near to me, I will change your heart and you will begin to understand righteousness and desire it and hunger for it and thirst for it. You will burn for it like my father. That's the heart I will give you. And it will be different in kind than the, the Pharisees. Not in degree. You won't, oh, they keep the law 13 times a day and you kept it 16 so you can lord it over them, which here my hearts are dark enough that we would. But you will give God your whole heart. It won't just be the letter of the law. And the six upcoming paragraphs after verse 20 is Jesus unpacking, again, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you can now understand why they're so mad. At Jesus, and you can understand why Paul spends so much time in Romans unpacking righteousness from the Jewish perspective in the Gentile because he's helping them know, hey, you can't obey your way to, the, to my dad. My dad already knows you're poor in spirit. He's waiting for you to return and fall at his feet, and you're going to be surprised at how big and lavish his hug is, but stop trying to obey your way to dad. And if you're a teacher of the law, for crying out loud, stop trying to teach people they can do the same because there's a definite burden here on people who teach which any parent or small group leader or you help kids in Sunday school is you and me. So again, he says, it's not just murder, letter of the law, but anger. It's not just physical adultery, but lustful thoughts. It's not just divorce, but covenant. It's, the Pharisees have created this really low bar for the marriage covenant. Men are allowed to divorce women for very flippant things. Women don't really have that power. I mean, think about women in the room. If someone said, will you marry me? What you can be assured of is I will not divorce you. Please don't marry them. That is the lowest bar you can possibly imagine for a marriage. If someone came to me and said to them, uh, they wanted to marry my daughter, and the thing I could be sure of was that I w- they wouldn't divorce him, I would throw him out the door. You mean you're going to love my daughter? You're going to tell me how you're going to keep and fulfill the covenant, the right relationship that you want to have with my daughter? Not all oh, divorce her if I don't if I feel like. Again, not just loving our neighbors as ourselves. So when you begin to understand, you're like, wow, that righteousness of Jesus is is way bigger than the Pharisees. So when he says, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, oh, it means I am called into pursuing right relationship in all those ways with God, myself, my neighbor, and the world. Why? Because I'm called into the passionate righteousness of Yahweh for the universe. The passionate righteousness, the passionate love God has for the world that he wants us to express. And so Jesus is there making disciples to send them to do that. So, of course, this is a way bigger, more holistic, healing, world-changing kind of righteousness. But it's also one that feels a little more fun, a little more inviting, a little more I'd like to be on that team. Because I know I can't keep the law more than the Pharisees already. I don't even know what the 248... Commandments are the 365 prohibitions. But the qualitative righteousness of Jesus as compared to the quantitative righteousness of the Pharisees, well, I can give God my whole heart. Notice it doesn't even say give God your, your really crossfit fit heart, you're really three times bigger than your neighbor's heart. It just says give him your whole heart. Could be this big, this big, this big, heavy are this morning. Give him your whole heart. That's what he wants. Can you earn it? No. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know they can't earn it because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be blessed when you acknowledge you can't, but then you're going to be doubly blessed because God's going to begin to sow in you a passionate desire to see those four relationships in the world restored. And I can say in my own life that is true. Over the decades of my following Jesus, that, has, that passion in those areas has grown. In my 20s, I would have been passionate about some things and lovingly, clueless about being passionate about some of the other things. But like Luther says, Martin Luther, we are humbled by the law by looking, and going, oh Lord, we need you, and we fly to Christ. We are humbled by the law and we fly to Jesus. And Jesus tells us it's, it's going to take something different, right? What's he saying in John three? You're going to have to be reborn. You're going to have to be born again. Guess what? You didn't make yourself be born. God worked in His mysterious ways to draw you to Himself, and then He birthed you. Any woman in the room who, who bore a children, bore a child, who gave birth to a child, would you say it was easy? No. Jesus is saying, come and be born again. So, I just want to tease this out a little bit. How, again, can this sort of righteousness inform our week, inform your understanding of yourself and of your neighbors? First, I think it infuses some energy and excitement into your and my vocation, your broad vocations as... Workers, friends, godparents, aunts, uncles, parents, siblings, neighbors, because suddenly it gives some frame to you pursuing holistic relationship, in any of those areas, is God's work. It's God's good work. That person at your job who is a pain in the neck, it doesn't say, because you're a Christian, you have to pretend they're not a pain in the neck and be kind and nice, No, it says pursue Jesus on their behalf. Seek to be Jesus then. Pursue those things for them because it's not just being nice. It's bringing heaven to that person. It is literally bringing heaven. You're at eternity's feet. In all those ways, to God, self, neighbor, and the world. That, that waiter or waitress or barista who's rude to you, right, the person who's rude to you at that setting, do you stand with a frozen face, smile, but you know in your heart you're like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take this stir straw and jab you in the heart. <laughs> not that I would ever say that. I've heard people who would say that, but not me. No, or do you just look and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray God bless you because God knows her story or his story, and I'm called to be bring right relationship with my neighbor in the world, and so I'm going to do that. When we were in the generosity series in the spring, Our Church and Your Church, my wife and I were looking for a third car for our kids, our kids who can now drive, and there was an estate sale on a fantastic car. And literally like 12 hours before, we hadn't realized we needed the third car. And, but we were deep in this series, two or three weeks in, generosity, blessing others. And I, I went to the estate sale, and I parked a little farther away. And I, I, I opened the door for somebody to go in, this woman to go into the, the house, and I walked in. She went in and talked to somebody who was coming past me. And I said to the guy who was over the sale, hey, I'm here to look at the car. She looked at me down the stairs, stopped, pivoted, and looked. In. She hadn't even seen the car yet. She looked and said, I'm going to buy the car. And my first thought wasn't godly. But my second thought, <laughs> my second thought was, oh, my gosh, I'm in this series on blessing and generosity and right relationship. And I don't know her story. And I don't know that. And so, Lord, bless her in that car. Now, I won't tell you how many times I had to pray that prayer over the spring as I kept looking for a third car, but that, that's righteousness. Being confronted with our sin, my poverty of spirit, throwing myself on the cross, and asking God to help me, even though I don't know her, to pray for her and bless her. It also should give some focus to your relationship to God, right? This is the most fundamental relationship you have. And, and are you and I spending time with him? Are you pursuing him? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Would would I be able to know, would you be able to know that, boy, that affects your week, right? Like there are simple ways to know how to do heat checks on our hearts, right? Like where are we spending our time and our money? Where's my time? Yesterday I had weird, these two experiences. I, I was a part of a virtual funeral service for a friend's father who passed away. And then we were at a birthday party last night for a friend who just turned 60, and in both of those settings, people talked about Jesus being their best friend. The virtual setting was so interesting because they had people who knew Jesus and didn't. And you, I bet I heard somebody say that about him 10 times. It wasn't just one person. People were like, oh, that really, this guy, that was true. I wonder if they'd say that about me. Righteousness. It should give dignity, too, to to the jobs we have. I think you could take every job you and I do, we don't have time to do it this morning, and figure out where does my job affect those four relationships? If you work with people, you immediately have a way to do that. There's particular jobs. Like if you're a counselor and you're helping people understand themselves and how God made them and maybe some trauma or work through some anxiety, you're working, Lord, God made them for a relationship with themselves. If you're a teacher and you're helping them understand God's world and how it's made and operating and all the different pieces of civil society, well, that's the world, right? That's relating in the world. Of course, if you're a parent and you're teaching them to your kids to reconcile and extend forgiveness, like that's righteousness. I think you could go all the way to like, you're an accountant. Clearly, I like doing this, it's a little weird. But let's say you're an accountant and you like spreadsheets and you might be like, I don't know how this works. But, but if you work for a company that's trying to turn a profit so you can pay your employees and have an impact in the world and produce a product that blesses people and people can, can own homes and pay for their kids to go to college. Like, what a fantastic extension of righteousness you have an opportunity to be a part of. God, self, neighbor, the world. On God's behalf, exceeding the Pharisees. Qualitative, not quantitative. But it also should help you not just understand yourself, but understand your neighbor's. Again, everyone you meet is created in the image of God and still in hunger of those right relationships. Everybody. But of course our brokenness means we twist them and pervert them or try to control them for our own needs. It might not go very well. You might see people or relate to people where you can, can see the symptoms or the causes or the coping mechanisms or the idols they have of those four relationships that they hope will bring them before Jesus in their own poverty of spirit before the Father. I think what happens before we are changed and and reborn is we can often hyper-focus on one of those. That thing will bring me full righteousness, full humanity, being fully human. If I focus on myself, go down to Barnes & Noble, look at all the books in the self-help section. Just so we have a self-help section is instructive. But almost all of those books are basically saying, focus, we know you want righteousness, we know you want to be fully human, buy this book, focus on you, and you'll be okay. There's a subtle joke in all that, right? Because if there was one book that really didn't, we wouldn't need the section. Right? We just all buy the one. Right. And with all due respect to Christians and the Christian publishing industry, we do that a little bit too. Buy our new book. But everyone you and I come into contact with is deeply hungry for righteousness. Could you quote that quote up from the book? This is from a book by a man named Bruce Marshall called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. It's about a Catholic priest named Father Smith. This quote, this man's having a conversation with a woman, and he says, you know, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man looking for intimacy in a terribly wrong place is still underneath looking for God. So that person you know who's really, really concerned about the environment, it's their maybe deepest passion, is is looking for God, and they're right in line. They're looking for an element of of righteousness because we're made to be in relationship with the world. Or that person you know who is always looking for a new boyfriend or girlfriend, that person will just meet that longing for righteousness with a neighbor. Or the person pushing a piece of legislation you don't agree with, but that's focused in their minds and really desiring to help the poor, that's someone pursuing righteousness. And your child wanting to do something kind for a friend or sibling is a lovely extension of righteousness. You and I are invited to bear God's righteousness in the world, broken, fallen vessels, reborn by Jesus, who is patiently walking with us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationship like the God who has made them and the son who died for them and the spirit sent to cultivate their own passionate desire for righteousness as his sons and daughters. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we are astounded when we consider how your passion is so broad for the world. You are passionate to love people that I could never love, and you have passionate understanding of how to do that in ways in the world that I feel daunted by or overwhelmed by. I am one man, and I'm surrounded by my friends here, but we are all only one man, one woman, and we offer ourselves to you. I pray again, more than anything, they would be freed to know you are passionately pursuing righteousness with them and you are bridging the gap between you and us. As my friend, our professor in seminary used to say that I move towards you one centimeter and you move towards me infinity minus one centimeter. May no one here leave not knowing that truth, and if there's anyone here who does not know you, has not been born again, may they cry out to you. May they come up to Johnny or me after the service and say, I want to know the Father who welcomes me. And Lord, give us understanding as we go into the world with the heat of the summer and the fatigue of the past year, we, with whatever amount of heart we have, offer ourselves to you, that we might bear your righteousness in our relationships to you and others and ourselves in the world this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.